0: Well, as we come to God's Word this morning, we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 1, the first 17 verses. And so if you have a Bible, and I hope you do this morning, if you would open it there. Jonah 1, verses 1 through 17. Before we come to God's Word, let's pray again and ask the Holy Spirit to come and open our eyes that we might truly see what the Lord has for us this morning. Pray with me, would you? Father in heaven, thank you again for this day and for this time, Lord, as we come to your word. Now we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and ears, that you would give us sight. Lord, that you would cause our hearts and minds to understand and believe your word this morning. Lord, press your word deep into our hearts that we might be changed by it today. God's good. In gracious name, we pray all these things. Amen. Let's turn our attention to God's word now. This is Jonah chapter one, one through 17. Here now, God's perfect and infallible word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will be quiet for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice for the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. May God praise and glorify the reading of his word today. A number of years ago, when I lived in Florida, uh, I had, uh, two young children at the time and they wanted to play soccer. That was one of the things that they wanted to do. And we found some clubs in the area and, and you could enroll your child there, but it was quite expensive. And the way in which you could get a, a pretty significant discount was to become a coach. If you volunteered, you could get half off. And so that sounded great to me. and you know uh, being a dad of young kids uh, wanting to see them uh, enjoy uh, sports to a certain degree i volunteered to be a coach uh, playing soccer Uh, there was only really one big problem with this whole plan and that was i didn't know the first thing about soccer Uh, i knew it involved a net I knew it involved a ball, and I knew it involved kicking the ball, and that was probably the extent of what I knew about soccer, least of all coaching it. Well, uh, they gave me a coach's hat and a whistle, and I f- felt like this was kind of all I needed. It- these were young kids, six-, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds maybe, and I thought, you know, this, this couldn't be that difficult. I was an adult, I had a hat, I had a whistle, uh, You just give them a ball and let them kind of kick it. It seemed like a pretty easy um, assignment for me. Well, uh, you would have thought that the other kids on my team were practicing for the Olympics. Uh, They they had been playing soccer for a number of years and they just didn't want to come out and kick the ball. They wanted to do drills and they wanted to do hard drills, and they wanted to really, really practice. And so, very quickly, I discovered, as the coach, that I knew the least about soccer of, of anyone on the team, including the six-, seven-, and eight-year-olds that I was supposed to be coaching. You see, this whole plan had really become something that it was not anticipated to be. I thought it was gonna be this, and it turned out to be this over here something much, much different than what I anticipated. And I thought about that uh, as I came to this passage on Jonah. This is probably one of the most familiar uh, stories in the Bible. Even if you're not a Christian, uh, this is probably one of the top five stories that you would have heard about. Go poll people in your community who are not church people or or Christians, and they probably will have heard, at least, of the name Jonah. And probably what they understand about Jonah is what I understood at a very young age about Jonah, and that was this, that Jonah was a man who disobeyed God, and then God caused him to be swallowed by a fish because he was disobedient. And so the moral of that story uh, that I understood was... If you don't want to be swallowed by a fish, don't disobey God. That, that, was the, that was the gist of what I gathered about it. You see, I had in my mind, much like the soccer game, that it, Jonah was this. But then when you begin to read and study the book and the story, you'll find out that Jonah is not this. It really is something over here much different. And that's what I want to convey briefly to us this morning. Uh, as we come to the first 17 verses now let's turn our attention to jonah and maybe what i'm talking about will become a bit more clear as we dive into these verses we come to this passage in scripture and we really don't know much about the actual person of jonah We do know and believe that Jonah was an actual person, a historical person. This is not some allegory, as some commentators and theologians believe, that this is just a story that's not real. It's just made up to make a point. But in fact, the truth is that Jonah was an actual person, that this is an actual historical account. And one of the main reasons that we hold to that is that when we look at the New Testament, especially in Matthew 12 and Matthew 16, we see Jesus himself speaking about Jonah. And the way he speaks about Jonah and these two accounts uh, is as if uh, Jonah is an actual person. He's not speaking as if this is some made-up allegorical story. We don't know much about Jonah, you just see there in verse 1, it says, "...the word of the Lord came to Jonah." Now, Jonah, we see, has a very successful resume. He is called the prophet of God. He is the mouthpiece of God. God is speaking through him. He's spoken through him before this account in Jonah. If we were to turn back to 2 Kings 14, we would see that Jonah has made a prophecy about the nation of Israel, and it's a good prophecy. Most of the prophecies from the prophets against Israel were against Israel, but this prophecy that he makes in 2 Kings 14 is a good one. King Jeroboam is rebuilding a portion of the northern wall the northern border of israel that borders on assyria assyria is uh, the enemy of israel and king jeroboam believed uh, through god's word coming to him through jonah that he was to rebuild this wall to protect israel and this wall was critical for the defense of israel and so Jonah becomes kind of famous. He gives this call to Jeroboam. Jeroboam obeys and rebuilds the wall. And there becomes a great national sense of pride that Jonah inspires in the people and in himself. He's a prophet who had a good word. He had a great resume coming into our text today. But look at Jonah's mission. Look at Jonah's mission. Verse 2, Arise, God comes to him again and says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up against me. Now, it's important to understand why this is uh, an unbelievable call for Jonah. Nineveh is the capital at this time of the Assyrian Empire. It lies on the banks of the or it did lie, on the banks of the Tigris River, and at that time, it was one of the largest cities in the world with a population of between 100 and 150,000 people. Not big in our day and time, but in that day, this was a massive city. It was a center for commerce and trade, center for Assyrian culture and the blending of other cultures. And on top of that, Assyria was a major world military power, so he's to go to this city and listen to his instructions. He is to preach against it because its wickedness had come up before God. Nineveh and the Assyrians were a particularly brutal people. Militarily, they were known for incredibly harsh treatment of prisoners in those uh, c- civilizations that they conquered. They were known uh, for horrendous crimes to subjugate the people that they conquered. They were also known religiously for their brutality. One of the major pagan gods that the Assyrians worship was a god named Dagon whose image was the image of a half man half fish. This was a god who required and called for human sacrifice. So the first surprise that we see in this passage now is that Jonah is called not just to speak against Nineveh, but he's called to deliver the message personally. He's to go to Nineveh and to call out against it. He he could just call out against it from the safety of Israel, but God calls him to go in person to this place, to this country that is the sworn enemies of Israel, of his people. AND HE'S TO GO INTO THEIR LARGEST CAPITAL CITY AND HE'S TO TELL THEM SOMETHING THAT THEY'RE GOING TO HATE. WELL, THAT'S THE FIRST SURPRISE, IS THAT HE IS CALLED TO GO PERSONALLY. AND HERE, AS WE SEE IN THE THIRD VERSE, IS THE SECOND SURPRISE. WHAT'S THE ANTICIPATION NOW OF WHAT THIS GREAT, SUCCESSFUL PROPHET WILL DO? YOU SEE? The anticipation is that the prophet will obey God, but what does he do? Look at the text again, verse three, but we're going to see that word several times in this passage. And when you see it, you know that there's a directional change. He's called to do one thing, but something else happens. Look at verse three, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he leaves flees runs away from his homeland he goes down to a seaport joppa and he gets a fare to go away to tarshish well this is kind of ironic a little bit isn't it i mean this is the prophet of god and what is he doing he's trying to run away from the lord if it wasn't so serious, it almost might be comical. Where did Jonah think he was going to go? Where did he think that he was going to go to run away from the presence of the Almighty God who exists everywhere at the same time? Where exactly was he going to run to? It says he was headed for Tarshish. That's a seaport in what's known as Spain today. It was the furthest point away in that day and time from where Jonah was. It was on the edge, if you will, of the known world. And so he was running as far away as he could from the Lord. Well, why is he running away? Well, at first it's not real obvious why he's running away. Perhaps he's afraid of what might happen to him in Nineveh. After all, that would be understandable, wouldn't it? The Assyrians would probably not take very kindly to a Jewish Israelite coming into their midst and telling them, oh, you are a pagan society, God's going to judge you and uh, I'll just see myself out. No, probably not. I'm sure he was concerned about The fact that his life, after he said those words, would end quite abruptly. Well, Jonah will reveal to us in just a minute why he's really running. Let's just pause here for a moment and just think about an application here for what we've read so far. It is often true that God calls us to do difficult things, isn't it? I want that to be one of the things that you and I take from this passage about Jonah. God's calling him here to do an immensely difficult thing, something that perhaps would end his life. And the same is true for you and I today. You and I, as people of God, are called often to do difficult things, to do very difficult things. And Jonah's response was to flee. He disobeyed God and ran away, or at least attempted to run away from that. John Calvin, the great Reformed theologian, says this, No one withdraws himself from obedience to God's command without seeking to diminish and take away from him his power so that he may no longer rule. To hear what's really happening here, when Jonah runs away, he's not just running away, he's really making a statement about his heart. Spiritually, inside the heart of Jonah, what's occurring is an attempt for him to become God. He doesn't like what God has called him to do, so he'll become his own God and decide, I would rather not do what you've called me to do, and I'll do something else. Here's where we really can begin to identify with Jonah's reaction, isn't it? Every time that you and I sin, we're saying, in effect, my way of navigating this situation is better than yours, God. My wisdom and my understanding is greater and more effective in this moment to handle this situation than yours is. Very convicting for us, isn't it? For that moment, when we disobey, we're declaring ourselves to be God. And what's happening in our hearts is, very quietly, an idol is being erected. And we are beginning to worship it. That's what's happening to Jonah here. An idol is being born in his heart And he's beginning to worship it. The idol is himself and his own desire to be God. And we're the same way. We don't like to think of ourselves as building idols in our hearts and worshiping them. Because after all, we come to church, right? We read the scriptures. So this would not apply to us, but it does. Jonah went to church. He read the scriptures. This is what happens in all human hearts when we sin. Well, as we let that settle, let's return to Jonah and see how this story progresses. Look at the Lord's response in verses 4 and 5. He gets on the ship, he begins to leave, and then it says, beginning in verse 4, here's the word again, but... But the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, so much so that the sailors were frightened, and they each began to cry out to their own God." Immediately, we see the Lord act, don't we? Quickly to demonstrate to Jonah that he's not going to be able to escape. Even the sailors were afraid. Now, this really should, should cause fear Uh, in us right this storm was so bad on the ocean that seasoned seagoers seasoned sailors were afraid now if the sailors were afraid you can imagine what kind of storm this was look at their response first it says they were afraid it speaks about their heart and their emotion then they begin to cry out to their own gods because of the fear that they were in, save us. And then finally, they began to do whatever they could to prevent the ship from potentially sinking. They began to throw their cargo overboard and the cargo was their money. This was valuable items that they were transporting. Panic had begun to set in and they were now doing anything that they could to save their life. We see and understand from the, the text that this was a multi-ethnic, multi-religious crew that was operating the ship, and they understood this storm to be supernatural in origin, or they understood at least that the weather and natural phenomenon were governed by their gods. So they, they begin to call out and pray to their gods to save them. Well, let's pause here again for just a moment and step back. What do we see here in this storm and the response? It's clear the storm is sent by the Lord. The text says, but the Lord hurled a great wind or threw a great wind. The storm was created by the Lord himself as a great witness that God will pursue those he loves. Did you hear that? You see, this is one of the points in which I think we think of the storm as a punishment, but I want to suggest that the storm is not a punishment against Jonah, it's an expression of God's grace and mercy towards Jonah. He's pursuing Jonah. GOD COULD HAVE ALLOWED JONAH TO GO, COULDN'T HE? BUT INSTEAD, HE GOES AFTER JONAH. HE COULD HAVE LET JONAH GO IN HIS SIN, BUT INSTEAD, HE PURSUES HIM. HE LOVES JONAH. HE PURSUES HIM, AND HE IS NOT GOING TO BE WILLING TO ALLOW JONAH TO STAY IN HIS SIN. AND SO HE PURSUES HIM IN A GREAT WAY. THE STORM, WE'LL SEE, IS A MEANS TO GET JONAH INTO THE WATER. AND WE'LL HEAR ABOUT THAT IN JUST A MOMENT. BUT I WANT YOU TO SEE AND THINK ABOUT THE STORM AS THE MERCY AND GRACE OF THE LORD, NOT AS A PUNISHMENT. I WANT YOU AND I TO TAKE HOPE FROM THAT TODAY. GOD STILL PURSUES HIS PEOPLE. That's our hope and our sin, isn't it? When we begin to erect idols like Jonah in our own life, our great hope is that our God pursues us. He loves us so much that he will not allow us to stay in our sins and to suffer the consequences of those. Aren't you happy this morning that you have a God that pursues you, that doesn't leave you in your sin as he justly should have and could have. That's the great hope we have this morning, a God who pursues us. And then the story shifts, doesn't it? We see another surprise. While all this is happening on deck, what is Jonah doing? Look at verse 5 and 6. But, see the, see the change in direction again, Jonah had gone down below deck where he had laid down and fallen asleep. The captain goes down and begins to chastise him. You see the contrast between the frantic action on the deck of the sailors and the inaction of Jonah. Now, how is it possible that the prophet of God could be asleep when death, it seemed, was so close? THE SHIP WAS MOMENTS PERHAPS FROM SINKING. WELL, JONAH, I THINK, HAD DEVELOPED A SETTLED DEFIANCE IN HIS SIN. HE KNEW WHERE THE STORM WAS FROM AND and HE HAD RESOLVED HIMSELF IN HIS SIN AND DISOBEDIENCE THAT THIS WAS GOD'S JUDGMENT UPON HIM. AND SO HE'S DOWN BELOW SLEEPING while a storm is raging just outside the door. The captain's words of Jonah echo the words of the Lord, don't they? What did the captain say? Arise, get up and go. Well, that's the same words that we heard from the Lord, isn't it, at the beginning of our text. Notice the irony of this. A pagan captain is calling the prophet to get up and pray when it should be the other way around, shouldn't it? It should be the prophet of God calling the pagan captain to pray, but it's not that way, is it? There's no record here of Jonah praying, of him doing what he's called to do. The the sleep that he's in becomes a kind of symbol for a spiritual slumber, I think, that you and I often fall in when we involve ourselves in our own sin. We become dull and lifeless. We become dead as a corpse, perhaps, in our sins. We become like sleeping people, unaware that death is outside the door. And the sailors, they come to each other and they have a plan. Did you see it in verse 7 through 10? Let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this storm and of course wouldn't you know it the lot fell on jonah well that's not a coincidence remember god is pursuing jonah the ancient pagan belief was that the gods became offended by the actions of humans and when that happened they would seek to punish the person who had offended them often through a natural disaster uh, or something like that and so it was apparent that somebody on that ship had done something that a God had not liked, and that was the cause of this. So we need to root out the person who's at fault. Until that point, we don't see Jonah making any attempt to confess that he's the person, do we? He's not repentive at all. He doesn't come forward with the information he hides in his sin. He's defiant in it. And it's only until they begin to question him that the truth comes out. And with Jonah's answer, they become terrified. Because the God of their passenger is the one that's causing this. What's gonna happen? <laughs> you see how the story builds in intensity. Then we look at it, verses 11 through 13, the, store, the sea's getting rougher and rougher and they ask him, Jonah, what can we do to make this right? And look at Jonah's answer. His answer is this, drown me, throw me overboard, throw me into the water, kill me, and this will settle the storm. At this point, at least, We see Jonah is confessing that the storm is due to him, and the sailors, though, they don't want to have his blood on their hands. They don't want the God of this man to be angry at them for killing him. And so they ignore Jonah, and they try and row, but you see, God will not be thwarted. They try and try and try, and it's of no avail. God wants Jonah where? in the water he wants him in the water that's why he prevents this ship from moving anywhere they're stuck in this storm and the only option is to do what jonah says to get him in the water which is the death sentence at least they think god wants jonah in the water And his divine, sovereign power is going to make it happen. Nothing that Jonah or the sailors can do to thwart this. And so God takes away every other option. Hmm. This sounds like you and I, doesn't it? God calls us to do uh, his will in a certain situation, and he begins to remove every other possibility to prevent us from disobeying him driving us in his great and loving sovereign power towards doing the will of him who called us verses 14 through 17 they cried out to the lord oh lord please don't let us die for taking this man's life we're innocent you have done as you please and look what they do exactly What God desires them to do. They took Jonah, the text says, and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And at this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. It's quite possible here, although we don't know, that perhaps through this uh, circumstance some of these sailors perhaps may have been converted. It says, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they, they made vows to him and sacrificed to him. Well, these were pagans. Perhaps not, but we're left just to speculate. And then, what will happen now? Jonah's in the water, and then we come to verse 17, and we hear one last time in this passage this great word, but. Jonah is minutes away from drowning to death in the sea, but the Lord provided a great fish. Oh, you see, just like my understanding uh, early on, my understanding of Jonah and the fish and his disobedience was all wrong. The Lord provided the fish. This is not a punishment. This is God's great salvation. Jonah is in the water and he's been placed in a helpless position. Everything from him has been stripped away. He's unable to swim, or at least unable to swim, swim well, and he's going under fast, certain that he was a dead man. His mouth and head begin to slip beneath the water. And then suddenly, oh, suddenly, the Lord provided. THE LORD PROVIDED THIS GREAT FISH. WITHOUT THE FISH, JONAH WOULD HAVE DROWNED. YET, THAT WAS NOT GOD'S PLAN FOR JONAH. AS WE KNOW, JONAH WAS GOING TO GO TO Tarshish, OR RATHER, HE WAS GOING TO GO TO NINEVEH, WHETHER HE LIKED IT OR NOT. AND THE FISH HERE IS GOD'S GRACE AND MERCY TOWARDS JONAH. IT'S HIM PURSUING HIM. Some questions are not answered here, are they? Some questions that we like to get distracted on. What kind of fish was it? How was he able to survive in the fish? All great questions. And perhaps later, we'll get the answers. But for now, that's not the point. The point here isn't really about Jonah. It's about God. Why the fish? God could have preserved Jonah's life in any number of ways, couldn't he have? He could have caused the storm to dissipate, guided the ship safely to shore, but he didn't. He causes this fish to swallow Jonah, and he's inside the fish three days and three nights. And this is one place in which I wish personally Scripture had given more detail. Jonah was in complete darkness for three days. It's possible that he was unable to see or sense anything for those three days. We're, although we're unsure of exactly what happened to him, although he was perhaps unsure what happened to him, all he knew is that he was alive. He hadn't dead. Alone with his thoughts for this amount of time in complete darkness, we see in chapter two, which you can read later that Jonah composes a prayer to the lord well as we come to a close here what can we step back and see from this sermon from this passage here about this prophet who runs away or at least attempts to run away from the lord we can say this number one that we can't outrun or thwart god's plan God is saying in no in certain terms, to Jonah and to us, that His desire will be accomplished and that He will use any means necessary to demonstrate His love and long-suffering for His people. And aren't you and I thankful and glad for that, right, as we sit here today, that God did not leave us in our sin, but that He pursued us in Christ when He could have left us. We see, secondly, that God's loving-kindness is immeasurable. God could have raised up someone else to deliver His message. He didn't need Jonah. He could have raised up someone else. He could have let Jonah go to Tarshish. He could have been done with him. But God loved Jonah enough to do something drastic to pursue Him with a storm and with a great fish." And people of God, hear this, Jesus has done something drastically to pursue you. He died on the cross. He sacrificed Himself for you so that you would not stay in your sin. We see also, thirdly, that the storm is not a punishment, it's an intervention. A saving intervention brought on by God's affection, not by his anger. You see, Jonah was unaware, really, of the kind of spiritual danger that he was in running away from the Lord. Jonah had become a slave to this idol called himself, and he needed to be freed from that idol freed from trying to be his own savior. This is the exact picture of us outside of Christ. And the storm is the picture of Jesus and how he comes to free sinners from their sin. What are you and I wrestling with right now that might feel like punishment to us, but in fact it's a way in which God is intervening on our behalf? This is the great message of Jonah in the first 17 verses. So I would encourage you as we leave today to meditate and think about these things. God's great and sovereign plan, His immeasurable loving kindness to pursue His people in His love for us through Christ. If you don't know, read the rest of the story of Jonah. Find out how this story ends up going, and you'll find some more drastic things in which you anticipated it being this way, and it really is this way. Pray with me, would you? Father in heaven, thank you for this story of Jonah, a man who, like us, begins to build for himself an idol called himself in his heart a man who runs away physically and spiritually from you father like we run away from you spiritually a man who is settled in his defiance and sin like us father a man who is desperately in need of your pursuit and your salvation Oh, Father, your pursuit of Jonah was not because he was a good person. It certainly was not because he had done the right things. Father, the same is true of us. Lord, we are not good people, and we have not done the right things. But, Father, praise to your glory that despite our sin and rebellion, you pursue us with your Son, Jesus You will not leave us in our sin and death and disobedience. But you come after us to save us in order to glorify you, to make much of you. Oh, Father, may this be the great truth that rests upon our hearts and minds this day as we consider your prophet Jonah. Lord, pursue us. Don't leave us in our sins. Oh, it's in Christ's gracious and good and loving name we pray all these things. Amen.